2. We will look this morning at the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 2. This last week, uh, learned this on Friday morning, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded. I uh, suspect you're aware of that. I suspect that talk show and uh, TV news and opinion programs uh, will be filled with commentary about that fact through this next week, probably have been over the weekend. I haven't watched any of those TV programs or listened to any of that uh, that uh, radio broadcasting. I, I'm, I'm reminded of a bumper sticker I saw years ago back when Shirley MacLaine was uh, popular. If you'll remember Shirley MacLaine out on a limb, remember that? Out on a broken limb, I might add. I remember this bumper sticker was pretty popular. You'd see it on bumper stickers or on bumpers and you'd see it in back windows. It said, visualize whirled peas. Did you get that? Visualize world peace is kind of what was being promoted back then. Visualize world peace. Somebody thought that was kind of funny and created this really funny bumper sticker that said, visualize whirled peas. If you can imagine that. Can you imagine everything being green? Well, I I thought it was funny. I'm sorry. I thought it was funny. But this prize, this peace prize is given, as you know, it's given to someone who has advanced the cause of peace in the world. Now, our world is characterized by anything but peace. So, you know, you want to ask yourself, what is it that brings peace? I mean, what is it that really can bring peace where there is estrangement, where there is division, where there is separation? I mean, what can, what can really bring together Protestant and Catholic Irishmen? What can really bring together Shia and Sunni? What can really bring together Jew and Gentile? I mean, visualizing world peace isn't going to get it done. Visualizing world peace isn't going to get it done. What's going to do it? And, And, you know, move from the global to the very, very local. What's going to bring together people who are estranged from one another? What's going to bring together husbands and wives who are estranged from each other? What's going to bring together children who are estranged from parents? What's going to bring together people who sit in the same room but sit on the opposite side of the room because they're estranged from one another? What's going to bring unity? It's not Barack Obama. It's not whoever you think ought to have received that Nobel Peace Prize. The problem of division and the problem of unity, if you will, is a central theme in Paul's letter to the Romans, surprisingly enough. That's what we're going to see. And what we're going to see, what we're going to come to understand as we look at this passage today and continue to think about Romans, what we're going to see is that there is nothing in this world that can bring unity, can bring peace, where there are divisions, nothing, nothing in you, nothing in me, nothing in us together, not all of our wisdom, not all of our ability, our technology, science, you you name it, nothing in us, about us, from us is going to bring unity and peace. It will be something completely alien to us. 
that will bring peace. And the point of departure, to quote G.K. Chesterton again, the point of departure for understanding that is understanding that when I ask the question, what is wrong with the world? The right answer is, I am. I am what is wrong with the world. And that's what we're going to see. That's what we're going to see as we look at this passage. So read with me at verse 1 of chapter 2 in Romans, and we'll dive into this here for the next several minutes. And let's remember, too, I, I, you know, probably should say this every week, I forget. Let's remember when we come to this, we're not coming to black words on a white page. We're not coming to the sentimental reflections of people who are more spiritual than we are. We're coming to the word of God, and God speaks these things into our world from outside the world for us, for our benefit, and we can trust them because they come from him. So let's read together. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God does not discriminate. God does not show partiality. Let's pray together. Lord, please be with us as we think about this passage. Please, Lord, um, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon each of us. Uh, Humble us under your mighty hand that in due time you might exalt us to the praise of your glorious name. And now give us your help by your spirit that we might understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, when you come to chapter 2 and verse 1 of Romans, let's let's just recognize that there's clearly a shift in what Paul is uh, doing here. There's a shift in focus. There's a, a shift in his attention. Um, and, and there's this person in verse 1, uh, this person who is referred to as, O oh man. Um, he, he says, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. Um, there's a shift in focus here. And, and so as we come to this first verse, we want to ask uh, some questions. We want to ask, not surprised, three questions. Okay, Three questions. Who's he talking to? Whom is he addressing? Who is Paul addressing here? Second, why is he addressing 
this person or, in fact, this group of people? And then third, what difference does it make for you and me? So who is he addressing? Uh, Why is he addressing them? And what difference does it make for you and me? Let's... um, Let's back up, if we can, for just a couple of minutes and remind ourselves where we are in this letter, okay? Because the connection between verse 32 and verse 1 of chapter 2 is is a critical connection. Let me just uh, remind you, before I give us the history, let me just remind you, or, or maybe tell you, if you're not aware of this, that the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible are not original to the Bible, they are, they are there as uh, helps to us. They were, they were given much, much later, uh, centuries after the canon was closed, after God spoke his final words, which are kept for us in the scriptures. He continues to speak in the creation, by the way. Don't, don't let anybody tell you that God stopped talking because he hasn't. He's still talking. Paul alludes to that in Romans chapter one. But his, his special work of revealing in propositional form, if you will, uh, that's contained in these 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And these chapter and verse divisions were inserted later. So you want to keep in mind as we make our way through this that as Paul comes to verse 1 of chapter 2, there's a continuation of thought here. There's even a, a therefore in the text that connects what he's saying with verses 1 and following to what preceded. When you see the word therefore, what's the question you always want to ask? What's the therefore, therefore? It's there to take you back to what has preceded it. So there's a continuation of thought here. And what Paul has been doing so far in this letter, in this first main section of this letter, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1, uh, he is he's intending to convey to us this idea that sin is universal. It's universal and pervasive. It's everywhere. And as I said before, it goes to the deepest recesses of who and what we are. It goes way deep down into our hearts. The problem of sin, this problem of sin, is this twofold problem, which I've already mentioned, that I'm guilty before God because of my sin, because I'm a lawbreaker. He's righteous, I'm unrighteous. He's holy, I'm unholy. He is perfect truth. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just not. I say this frequently, just to ask my wife and kids. I'm not. Neither are you. You can fake it with me. You can pretend but I've lived too long, <laughs> right? I've lived too long. Uh, I'm, I'm guilty before a holy God who is really there because I am unrighteous uh, and I'm unholy. And then I have this second problem, the problem of being in bondage to sin because of sin. And what Paul has told us just prior to verses 18 and following is that there's some great good news. He introduces it in the first five verses of Romans chapter 1. He tells us that this long-awaited promised heir of David has come. He's a king. He is also God the Son. He is David's son. He is God's son. He comes as a king. And when he comes as a king, he brings his reign. And what is characteristic of his reign, very, very importantly, very significantly, what is characteristic of his reign, wherever his reign exists, is peace. Shalom. In the broadest, widest, deepest, highest possible sense. And in that gospel, which announces the coming of this king, Paul says in verses 16 and following, in that gospel, which Paul is glad to proclaim, which he can't wait to proclaim, he wants to go to Rome to tell this gospel. What is in that gospel is a righteousness that comes from God, meaning a deliverance, meaning a salvation, 
meaning something that deals with this twofold problem that I have, the problem of guilt before God and the problem of being in bondage in sin. And that righteousness, that deliverance, that salvation that comes, which makes up this gospel that Paul wants to herald, is something that I receive by faith. That's verse 18, or verse 17. The righteous live by faith. By faith, the righteous will live. He's citing the Old Testament. He's, he's calling forth from out of the vast riches of Old Testament wisdom this, this truth that's not new to the gospel. It was there in promise form in the Old Testament. This truth that my right standing before God depends not upon me. My freedom from bondage and sin depends not upon me. Pedaling faster, trying harder. My right standing before God and my deliverance from the bondage of sin comes because somebody else has done something for me. He's going to get there and explicate this, explain it more fully. But he's telling us that there is a gospel, there is a salvation, there is a righteousness, there is a way for me to be right before God, there is a way for me to be free And it comes to me in what Jesus has done in my place, which I receive by faith, which I don't deserve, which I can't earn, but which I receive by faith. And it's against that proclamation, that heralding of a salvation, a deliverance, a righteousness, a right standing before God, that Paul, it's against that good news that Paul portrays the bad news so that the good news might look even better. And he talks about this wrath of God, God revealing his wrath against all unrighteousness. Keep that word in view. All unrighteousness against all unrighteousness and ungodliness among men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. What's wrong with us? Paul says we become foolish in our hearts and our hearts have become darkened and we suppress the truth. Truth that is evident all over the universe. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Night to night pours forth speech. There's no place in the whole universe where this speech, this language is not heard. It's everywhere. Our problem is not a problem of information. Our problem is a problem of rebellion. A problem of suppressing this truth of pretending or denying that God exists at all. But Paul says that we're without excuse. And then he goes on to talk about how this wrath of God is revealed by God in judgment, giving rebels. Look, there are faces here I've never seen before. I want you to understand I'm trying to do the best I can to explain to you what the word of God says. God's word, not my word. And God's word is telling us that the manner in which God expresses his judgment, most specifically here, is by giving rebels over to themselves more and more and more and more. So that by the time you get to verses 28 to 32 of chapter 1, and when you come to verse 1 of chapter 2, you've reached the bottom. Let me point this out again. I made this point last week. You don't reach the bottom at verse 27 of chapter 1. You reach the bottom at verse 32 of chapter 1. And those last four or five verses 
represent that bottom. And then you come to verse 1 of chapter 2, and Paul turns his attention from the generality of mankind, from a description of mankind in his sin, in their sin in general, he turns his attention from the generality of mankind to point specifically at a particular group of people. 25 times in, the, in verses 18 to 32, he uses third-person personal pronouns and third-person plural verbs. They, them, they, them, they, them. But in chapter 2, verse 1, He shifts from the third person to the second person, and he says, you, you. So who's the you? Well, let me suggest to you that the you is the Jewish people in the midst of this congregation. The Jewish people whom Paul is addressing. Paul is speaking now to them. How do I know this? Let me give you three reasons why I know this, why I believe this to be the case. First, in verse 4, he says, Do you, the same you as in verse 1, do you presume upon his kindness and forbearance? The word in the text, kindness, is related to the word for grace, the word that appears in lots of different forms throughout the New Testament. Grace, do you presume upon his grace and forbearance? That is a reference to the special manner in which God chose the Jewish people out of all of the nations of the earth to be his prized people, to be his treasured possession, from whom would come the anointed son of David, who would be the great deliverer, the deliverer not only of the Jewish people, but the deliverer of a people from the nations of the earth. Your kindness the kindness of God. Do you presume upon his kindness and forbearance? What is the forbearance that's being referred to? That's a reference to centuries and centuries of patience. As God was patient with the Jewish people, the nation Israel, from the time of their choosing, if you will, in Abraham and all of Abraham's sons and daughters and granddaughters and and grandsons, the whole of the nation that grew out of the loins of Abraham. God was patient with them across those centuries. All of those centuries in which they rejected the one true God, maybe retained some sort of formal allegiance to him, some sort of formal adherence to his word, but in their practices, rejected him. That's what the prophets are so deeply troubled about across all of those centuries. God sent all his prophets. Why did he send the prophets? He sent the prophets to say, hey, you're committing spiritual adultery here. You're prostituting yourselves. Those are words, and they're more graphic than that. I mean, there is language in the Old Testament that would cause a sailor to blush, and it's language that comes from God himself as he describes what it is the Israelites are doing as they abandon the one true God and commit spiritual adultery with the false gods of the Canaanites. And God continued to be patient, patient. whole lot of reasons for that. I mean, if we could hit the pause button and just sort of stop time, I'd give you those reasons. Maybe we'll get to them. But the point is that he was patient with them across all of those centuries. Kindness and patience. He's speaking specifically to the Jews who are in the midst of this congregation that is gathering week by week to worship some of these people, some of these Jews, 
have embraced this Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited Messiah. I, I got to believe that as may be the case here, there were some people in those congregations, both Jew and Gentile, these house churches scattered all around Rome. There were probably people in those gatherings who were considering Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you know, that's a significant thing. Paul's speaking really hard words here. Right? This is not how you win friends and influence people. This is not how you draw them in. To speak so directly to people about the truth of the gospel and about how specifically Jewish people have experienced God's kindness, his grace, and his patience, his long-suffering. The second reason for believing that Paul is speaking to these uh, folks who are Jews in the midst of this congregation is verse 2. He says, we, verse 2, we know. Now he's moved to the first person. Again, I love that, okay? I love that. Paul does this all over the place in his letters. He'll start by talking about you, and then he'll remember, oh, yeah, that's me too. That's me too, Right? I say this periodically, you just got to understand this about me. I'm not up here in a black robe because I'm somehow intrinsically or inherently different from you. I'm up here in a black robe for two, two reasons. Jesus saved me and Jesus called me to do this. Underneath this black robe is the heart of a sinner who needs a savior every bit as much as you do. And that's what Paul is saying to these folks. He's saying that to these folks. We know, not just you, but we, we know. We who? We Jews. We, those of us who have experienced the kindness and patience of God. We Jews. I, Paul, who for all of those years rejected the true God, even though formally and externally I said I believed in the true God, I rejected him. How do you know that Paul rejected the one true God? He killed Christians. He killed Christians. He was there when Stephen was martyred. You know, Paul is speaking out of the anguish of his own soul. He's not pointing the finger at these Jews in Rome. He's pointing the finger at himself. You know how that goes, don't you, right? When you point that finger that way, there are three more pointing back at you. That's what he's doing. He's remembering that he is one of them, one of those who had experienced this kindness and patience, and God, exceedingly patient with Paul in grace and mercy, called him from darkness into light and life because of Jesus Christ. And then the third reason I'm convinced that he's talking to Jews is that by the time you get to verse 17, he addresses them specifically and forthrightly. Verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, if you, you see there it's very explicit that he's referring to Jews, but I'm convinced here in verse 1, in this first part of this whole chapter, that Paul is speaking to the Jews. And remember his point here. Remember his point in this whole section is to seek to persuade us that we all alike, whether Jew or Gentile, he uses that phrase because he's always bouncing between speaking to the Jews and speaking to the Gentiles, whether Jew or Gentile, we all alike are under sin. That's verse 9 of chapter 3. Or verse 23 of chapter 3. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Jew and Gentile alike. So who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews. Now, here's the second thing. Why is he speaking to the Jews? Well, here's, here's the reason. Here's the reason that he is speaking to the Jews. You can hear them, and he hears them. And what Paul adopts in this letter is a style of communication that was very commonplace at his time. Uh, it's, it's called a diatribe. And in a diatribe, what you, what you do is, a, is imagine that you're having a conversation with a person who is on the other side of an argument from you. Okay? I have those conversations with myself in the shower frequently in the morning. Well, Paul is imagining somebody. He's having, then this person he's imagining is a representative of, of this particular group he is addressing. And the group he's addressing is the Jews. And he's anticipating what their response will be to the things that he's saying in chapter 1. Okay? He's, he's, he's inserting himself into the situation. He's thinking like a Jew. He's trying to imagine what the response will be. And here is what the response will be. The Jews who are sitting in the congregation listening, listening to this letter being read will be saying in their smug self-righteousness, in their ethnic, racial, theological superiority, they will be saying, you go, Paul. You go. Now, we're back in chapter 1, okay? You go, Paul. You let those despicable Gentiles have it. Let them have it, Paul. We're, we're with you, man. We find this Roman culture to be so despicable and disgusting. We find their behavior, their attitude, we find all of this stuff to be so reprehensible. You go, man. Blast them. Let them have it. Don't let up. Don't let up. By the way, you should know that some of the particular things that were characteristic of Roman culture, like the advocacy of sexual license and the advocacy of homosexuality, those things were not commonplace among the Jews. Which is why I said to you folks, don't stop at verse 27. Go on to verses 28 to 32. Because that's what the Apostle Paul has in mind as he speaks to these Jews. They're thinking to themselves, they're the bad guys. They, 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 they. They're the bad guys out there. But we're the good guys in here. We have the truth. They are full of lies and corruption. Paul knows this. He knows that's how Jews think because that's the way he used to think. And he can hear them saying, I hope, okay, you've got a Jewish Gentile congregation. He can hear the Jews saying, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. I hope so-and-so is listening to this. I hope that Gentile person over there is listening to this. Okay, pause button. I'm setting you up, okay? I'm setting you up. You ever walked out of a sermon saying, I hope my son was listening to that. 
You walked out of a sermon and said, I hope my father was listening to that. Walked out of a sermon, I hope my husband, I hope my wife, I hope that church member over there was listening to that. And what does Paul do as he anticipates, as he hears people saying, I hope so-and-so. Paul, in effect, is saying, if you're sitting there in all of your smug self-righteousness thinking so-and-so needs to hear this, this isn't about him, it isn't about her, it's about you. It's about you. You who condemn the one sitting next to you or the one across the room from you. You the one feeling superior because of your ethnicity, because of your theological training, because your righteousness is more elevated than the righteousness of those around you. You are condemning yourself because you practice the very same things. What things? He's saying this to Jews. What things? Well, remember. Remember. Paul's not thinking about the specific things of verses 24 and 25 and 26 and 27. He's thinking about the larger catalog of things in verses 28 to 32. So, okay, so you advocate monogamous heterosexual marriage. So you prize the institution of marriage and you are opposed to sexual license. So you decry as Seneca did. Seneca was a Roman philosopher. He was every bit as vitriolic, if you will, pointed condemning of homosexuality and sexual license in the Roman Empire as was Paul. And he was a pagan. If you condemn these things, don't stop reading. What are the things that Paul has in view as he thinks about these Jews sitting in the congregation in their smug self-righteousness? He's thinking, frankly, about the things I mentioned last week. Notice the list again. Covetousness, malice, envy, deceit, gossip, slander, haughtiness, boastfulness, insolence, faithlessness. How easy it was for a Jewish culture that did not condone adultery, that did not condone sexual license, that did not condone homosexuality, the notorious, very visible sins of Greco-Roman culture. How easy it was for the Jews of Paul's day to separate themselves from their Gentile brothers and sisters, feeling smug and self-righteous because it's the great parable of Jesus, shows us, exposes us to, and in exposing us to it, exposes our hearts. A whole culture that would say, thank God, thank God, I'm not like that sinful man over there. Paul says, no, you can't stop with the notorious sins. You can't stop with the highly visible sins. 
There's more to the cafeteria of sinfulness than those things. And you, my dear brothers and sisters, my Jews, according to the flesh, you are guilty of those things. And at the end of this chapter, he says, near the end of this chapter, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's in verse 24 of chapter 2. Paul's going to go on to deal in greater detail with these matters. And we'll look at what he does next week as we look at chapter 2 a little bit more closely. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this. The ground is flat. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's only people who build hills, mountains, mountain ranges of self-righteousness upon which to stand and from which to look down upon others. The ground at the base of this is flat. It is level. And any form of pride or arrogance or self-righteousness, whether it be a husband who looks at his wife and says, you're the problem, a wife who looks at her husband and says, you're the problem, a father who looks at his child and says, you're the problem, child who looks at her father and says, you're the problem, a person across the room who is a member looks at another member and says, if only you were like me, then the world would be a good place. It is only people who build hills and mountains and mountain ranges of self-righteousness upon which to stand and from which to look down at others. We're going to see next week that those hills and mountains and mountain ranges can be hills and mountains and mountain ranges of ethnicity. That's verses 1 through 11. We can look in two weeks, or maybe we'll get to it next week, at verses 12 through 24, at hills and mountains and mountain ranges of moral rectitude, people who have a code and who live by that code, and because of that code, look down their noses at others. Or in the last section, verses 25 to the end, we'll look at how religious practices and performances can be a hill, a mountain, a mountain range of smug self-righteousness from which I look down upon others in my smug self-righteousness. My brothers and sisters, the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. It is flat. The ground at the foot of the cross is for sinners. And the pathway to peace and unity, so counterintuitive, is not by getting everybody else to be like me according to my standards of righteousness. The pathway to peace and unity between two people 
in the midst of a group of people. The pathway to peace and unity is by me humbling myself and acknowledging that I am the sinner who needs the Savior. And by coming to that Savior and seeking from him what he alone gives, the grace to forgive and the grace to free. Peace based on anything else is plastic. It may have an award attached to it. It may have a tidy sum of money attached to it. It is rubbish. The pathway to peace is at the flat ground at the foot of the cross for sinners who need a savior. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a couple of minutes before we sing before the throne of God above. Let me just invite you quietly to reflect, to look into your own heart, to examine yourself. And then we'll sing together as we come to the table. Let's pray. You've been uh, sitting for a long time. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing together before the throne of God above as we come to this table.